Okay. Did I miss any blanks, Lee? No, no miss blanks. But that sounds like there's a but. Alex, do you... Yeah. Yeah, you got praise that that Dave Stringer's uh, they burned some of the nerve endings. That seems to have given a lot of relief. Praise God for that, indeed. Okay, we can start the ABF now for those courting. Um, so if we got all the blanks, any any questions? I got a ton of extra material we could do. Um, any questions from John? Deb. When we were talk, when you were talking about um, Jesus uh, controlling or Jesus hour, yeah, and Jesus is in control of his hour, how does that fit with I don't do anything but what the Father says? You know, the word control I think is giving me fits. Let me let me tell you what I meant by control. Jesus is intentionally making sure there. If you go read Daniel. Daniel's prophecy, there is a day, a specific day, the Messiah is supposed to be cut off. Jesus knows when his hour should be. And Jesus is taking, we, we skip some of the, we skip some of the references I had there. If you look at them up, you'll see Jesus avoiding persecution at sometimes. He knows the Jews are trying to arrest him, so he went to Galilee. That's an effort to get the timing right. And at other times, Jesus is escalating intentionally. So in the same way that like he's got his hand on the throttle and he's making sure he's in control, making sure that the, es the, the tension and the conflict escalates at the right time. So they crucify him at the right time. The point being, it's not some accident that happens. Oh, no. Rather, we're to understand Jesus is driving the car to the cross. He's, he's driving us there. He's in control of the speed with which it goes, and he's taking measures to both speed up and slow down the escalating conflict. Um, th that's what I mean by in control. It's on his mind. It's not time yet. So, so we'll get to it when he gets to the wedding at Cana. He meets the immediate need, but he does so in a way that doesn't bring him attention. Why? Because it's not his hour yet. Implication. If I begin working too many big miracles now this early... It'll throw the timing off because in John's gospel, it's the resurrection of Lazarus and the, the, the hubbub and commotion around that that makes the Jews finally say, we need to kill him and we need to kill Lazarus. The same thing happens in John 7 when his brothers say, look, everyone who does what you're doing doesn't do it privately. Go up openly. And Jesus doesn't go up openly. He goes up surreptitiously and he does go up, but he does it privately again to not draw too much attention to himself. So we see Jesus taking actions to both speed up and slow down the hostility. So in five, I think he's clearly escalating. My father works to now and I work to now. He didn't have to pick a fight with him, but he does. So that's what I mean by he's in control. The timing of the crucifixion, the cross looming before him, Jesus is escalating and slowing down the cross. He is sovereignly in control of when it comes. That's what I mean to say. He's then then would it be accurate to say he's the one controlling the human stuff like we just described yeah. because the father told him. Yes. Go, go to John 17. Yes. This is exactly the point Jesus makes in his prayer. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus saying the hour has come and what he has done is nothing but the work the father gave him to do. So we could infer part of the work the father gave him to do is make sure the hour comes at the right hour. Make sure the hour comes at the right time. So no, of course, Jesus' direction and sovereign control over the cross is, is the human agency. The, in one sense, this is the father's plan from eternity back. Jesus is responsible 
for speeding up the escalation of conflict and avoiding conflict. That's what I mean. Jesus is at times dodging the conflict and at other times pouring gas on a fire. That's what I mean by he's in control. Fair, fair enough? Okay. Okay. Lee. Microphone. We need a microphone. Oh, there it is. Um, in John 5.37, which you quoted, the Father has sent me himself. Wait, the Father sent me himself, testified concerning you. You've never heard his voice or seen his form. Now, when it said he's, you've never heard his voice, here's the two questions I have. What was at his baptism, what did people hear? Just like thunder or something? Yes. Okay, yes. and what about Moses? He heard his voice. Well, I, you, they haven't received Moses either. So there were pe- the, the Old right. Testament doesn't claim no one's heard God. Um, so Samuel, right, thinks it's Eli right. calling him. Right. It's God. Yeah. So, so the claim of no one at any time has seen God, no such similar claim has been made in the Old Testament. No one's ever heard God. What Jesus is saying is, You've got God's word and you think you're hearing from God. No, you're not because you don't love me. So if you if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. I mean, it's a radical claim. I and mean, think right. well-meaning, unbelieving Jews everywhere. Do they believe Moses? According to Jesus, no, they don't. Because if they believed Moses, they believe me. I mean, that is a huge claim. So that's that's where he says you've never heard his voice. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Bennett. So when you were talking about Moses, were you talking about the burning bush? No, I wasn't. But the burning bush was revolved around God. Yes. But he was speaking to Moses. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, yes. But I was not talking about that. Sorry, I was just curious. You're fine. You're fine. Okay, other questions? Oh, Katie. And I might have misunderstood you, but when we were talking about, it was 3A, so true belief endures and obeys. And we were in John 3.36, I think. Yes. And so I understand the true belief does obey. So what do we call the belief, I guess, when they say the demons believed? That's what I'm saying. There is something we can call faith. One of the things that's unhelpful is in English, um, we don't have, faith can't be made into a verb. You can't faith something. So in, in Greek, you've got the pistis word family, the noun, pistis, faith, and then pistueo, to believe. And so the Greek, that's just that one word group. So we have to switch between believe and belief, I suppose, or faith, right? So there is something that you can rightly call faith that doesn't save, that the demons believe. There, there's a, there is a faith that doesn't save, for lack of a better term. Um, and so part of what I'm saying John is trying to do is clarify and define what he means, what he wants us to do. He wants us to have a particular belief in a particular content so that we might have life in Christ's name. And so part of what he's doing is laying out ample reasons to believe Jesus is the Christ, ample reasons to believe Jesus is the Son of God, and show us the distinction between believing some stuff about Jesus. Nicodemus is the perfect example of that. And he believes some stuff. And it comes right out of the end of two while Jesus was in Jerusalem. Go, go, to, go to John 2. Let me show you an example. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that's fine. It'll take us a while to get here. I think the chapter division at John 3 is not where I would have put the chapter division. I put the chapter division at 2.22. The end of 2.22, I'd start chapter 3. The last paragraph of John 2 sets up Nicodemus and helps us interpret Nicodemus. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing. Now go back to the thesis of the book. Many other signs Jesus did, but these have been written that you might believe. These people saw signs and believed. That looks good, right? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus has seen signs. Right? So I think that paragraph at the end of two gives the principle many believed in a way that Jesus isn't a fan of. 
They believed, and Jesus doesn't open himself up to them, which I think is meant to make us scratch our heads and go, what? what? And you can't hinge it on the wording. The wording in 23, many believed in his name, is the identical wording of 113. 12 and 13. But to all who received him, who believed in his name. Which is why I think John expects us. When I say John's intentionally zigging when we think we're just going to zag. If you've read 113, 12 I mean, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name, identical phrase, when they saw the signs he was doing. What would you expect from 112? And Jesus gave them the right to become children of God. And what you read is, Jesus on his parts did not entrust himself to them. And I do think the first time you read through it, that's supposed to be, wait, what? And then I think Nicodemus pictures and explains why this is. Nicodemus believes some things about Jesus. You're from God. You've done some signs. But Nicodemus has come to size up Jesus. Nicodemus has come as an emissary of the Jews. He shows up saying, we, just like they sent people to John the Baptist. What's going on here? Where's your, you got your paperwork filled out for baptizing? Why are you baptizing? Just like they questioned Jesus when he cleansed the temple. Hey, by what authority? What sign do you do? Nicodemus is showing up, which is exactly what 225 says. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I think you add that in, and now there's a subtext that the Pharisees in sending Nicodemus are potentially willing to back Jesus. I mean, if Jesus holds the right views, if Jesus has a right opinion of them, I'm filling it in, but... but he comes at night so the Pharisees don't have to commit positively or negatively against Jesus to size him up. And that's, I think, why Jesus' response is, what makes you think you'd know truth if you saw it? I mean, Jesus' response to Nicodemus, let's be honest, is, is seems a little blunt. Nicodemus shows up, truly, truly, I say to you, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't say, Good, good of you to notice, Nicodemus, or any other such thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, I think the subtext with Nicodemus' whole we, and Jesus, by the way, starts responding to Nicodemus in the plural. That's not accidental. Uh, I don't know if my Bible gives me a footnote starting in verse 11, that you, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you are you alls. You plurals. So Nicodemus shows up representing a group, we, and partway through Jesus' response to him, Jesus starts speaking to that group, you all. And so um, I think we're getting an explanation of how you could believe some things about Jesus. You could think he's a prophet from God. You could think he's a miracle worker. You could think he's sent by God and still have Jesus give you the Heisman. See, that's the football reference, I think, right? Or is it soccer? Um, sorry, I'm joking. I just, but, but so like, there's an example of like, something is inadequate about Nicodemus's faith. Now, Nicodemus is an interesting test case because we know by the end of the gospel, he does come to faith. He shows up twice more. He's going to defend Jesus to the Pharisees a little later, and then he's going to show up and public identify himself as a disciple. But here we know, if you look at verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you all do not believe. Is Nicodemus part of the believing group right now? Not in the way that matters, no. Not in the way that matters. So, so John is clarifying what... And, and if you contrast Nicodemus with the woman at the well and how gentle and doggedly pursuant Jesus is versus his... What makes you think you can see truth, Nick? Part of this is understanding what, what, what accounts for the difference. Why is Jesus so in your face with Nicodemus and yet so patient, long-suffering? I mean, the woman of the well is dodging Jesus, and she's trying to change the subject. Speaking of husbands, what mountain should we worship on? I mean, and Jesus just doggedly pursues her. No, no, it's not like, well, she's really open. No, <laughs> Jesus interacts with them very differently. And part of what I think we're supposed to do is, why? Why does this teacher of Israel, who thinks Jesus is a rabbi, who saw signs, who thinks Jesus is from God, surely that's all to the good. Why is Jesus so, I won't say harsh, but blunt, angular with him? And yet this woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. She's been married, not three, but five. Someone corrected me. I said three last week. Thank you. Five times. She's living with her man who's not her husband. She's, she's an outcast of outcasts. And Jesus treats her very differently. So and, what it, 
Okay, so go. Would it be fair to say true belief versus blind, blind belief? Like distinguishing between... dead What James would call dead faith? Living faith versus yeah. dead faith? There might be a category. Okay. You, you know what I mean? So um, so one of the hallmarks I'm trying to suggest in that is that, that tr- the faith James is after obeys Christ, follows Christ. The faith that James is after also abides. That's the other emphasis. Uh, if you're my disciples, you, if you abide in my word, you'll truly be my disciples and the truth will set you free, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. You've made a good start. Keep, keep it up. Keep it up. Keep going. Something like that. So as we go through the book, we should be working on our definition of what does it mean to believe. Okay. Lee again. That's a great question. No, this is the first of his miracles. But she... Um, that's a great question. Now, John gives, no, John gives us no background. Now, if we bring the other gospels to bear, the one of whom angels said this, I mean, you start going to all the angelic declarations about Jesus. And all of a sudden now you might have a reason for Mary's apprehension that maybe her son's a little special and could do some special things. Um, wedding wine is a hallmark of the messianic kingdom. The Messiah is going to bring in a kingdom where the wine will drip from the, from hills. So it, it fits in that sense. But no, this is his first miracle. Timing-wise, Jesus okay, Jesus works no miracles until he receives his, the Spirit at the baptism. So in Luke, the Spirit comes upon him, and then he returned in the power of the Spirit, and he does miracles. And he's, if you fit the chronology, John the Baptist references Jesus' baptism in chapter 1, which means we're after the baptism, but we're before his first miracle. And apparently... Mark tells us that immediately after the baptism, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tested. So the, so the timing is baptism, immediate 40 days of testing the wilderness. Well, apparently Jesus returned to John the Baptist's camp before beginning his public ministry. Luke just has, he returned to the area in the power of the Spirit. John gives us, well, actually he returned back to the camp of John the Baptist, gathered a small group of disciples, and then he went to a wedding. And so... No, he has not done anything miraculous yet, but there's been a lot of miraculous reports about him that Mary herself has heard. So I'd say probably that, messianic expectations. Because even the Jews say later, when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this? So there is an expectation that the Messiah is going to be able to do some stuff. So that'd be my guess of why Mary thought maybe he could do something. Now, what she thought he could do, whether he just asked the Father or who knows, but you are a rule breaker in the sense of you, you, you break expectations. You're, you're unusual. Maybe you can do something here, but no, I don't know why. Um, okay. Okay. I want to make a point since I want to make a point that, that to try to unpack the significance of what I mean by, um, why I spent the time arguing that John doesn't expect we're, we're scholars of Judaism and this, the distinction between, I think we have time here. The event and the telling of the event. Um, both, okay, so Jesus did things. John says this at the end of his gospel. If, if the record of everything Jesus did was written, the whole earth, I suppose, would not be large enough for it. So, and everything Jesus does images God, is revelatory, right? So Jesus eating lunch, Jesus taking a nap, Jesus walking down the street is revealing the Father. He's revealing God. And John has chosen snapshots to give us. So one of the things you make to make a distinction on is the event itself, the thing happening, and we have John's telling of the event. So let me let me try to make it practical. So what and why I'll emphasize the point that John does not think we're, we're scholars of the ancient Near East. I I had a professor of mine. I won't name him, um, although he referenced me in a message. We didn't name me, so I'm returning the favor right now. So, oh, I love this guy. Love this guy. Um, and we would talk about this. And he gave a message in John 7. I read to you earlier in the message. Jesus stood up in the Feast of Booths and said, If anyone believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking to the Master's Seminary students. He's teaching to prospective preachers. And he was telling us that recent archaeological information has uncovered the fact that during the intertestamental period, during the 400 years from the close of Malachi, the Italian prophet, 
and John the Baptist. During those 400 years, the Jews had created a water-pouring ritual during the Feast of Booze in the temple. And Jesus is in the temple on the day of the feast. And look, Jesus, as a great itinerant preacher, has taken his message and applied it to what's going on around him. He's co-opted a symbol. Everyone's thinking water. We don't know if the water was just pouring or is about to be poured. Or, but, but look how Jesus, as a great preacher, is taking advantage of what's going on and, and making a metaphor and driving it home. And we'd be good preachers if we did the same thing. And that's all good and well. And, and he, he made the point in the message. Love this guy. I love him. This is a friend of mine. He said, now I know one of the students here won't like me saying this. Then he went forward. And I didn't. Um, so, so I get to it. <laughs> no, but here's, here's my response is, you think John expected us to get that when John isn't sure we know what rabbi means? So here's what I mean by the distinction. And when we talked later saying to him, I said, look, I am sure, first of all, that when Jesus stood up and spoke during the Feast of Booze, he said a lot more than the sentence that John records. Jesus may have meant 500 things in the event Jesus teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booze. John is only focusing on a subset of that. John doesn't tell us everything Jesus said. So we can distinguish between the event. I said, look, I'm wide open to the possibility that the event of Jesus speaking in the Feast of Booths in the temple, he was doing everything you said he was doing by employing the water. That, that's entirely plausible. I'm open to the idea. I'm just saying I reject the notion John intends us to draw that conclusion. If John will give supplemental information for something as simple as rabbi, which means teacher, messiah, which means Christ. Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. You need to know that. Surely he would tell us about this water pouring ritual if that factored into what he wanted us to get from his gospel. And so that forms a good governor because, you know, you'll talk to people and they'll be like, oh, there's these Jewish. Clearly, John doesn't think we need to have extensive Jewish knowledge to understand what he's writing. So the distinction between what happened in the event and John's reporting of the event we're looking to what does John want us to get from this? What is John highlighting? What does John think is significant? And it's entirely plausible if the archaeology backs up the claim about the water pouring that, that Jesus was doing that. I'm just saying I don't think it's plausible that John has any intention that we would draw any such conclusion. Does that distinction make sense? Because it's, it's subtle, but I think it's important. Um, it's one of the reasons I don't want to harmonize all the Gospels all the time because you lose the focus of what John's getting at. What does John want us to draw from this? Um, which is why if John shows knowledge or evidence of the other Gospels, then using them seems valid in trying to fill out what we're getting from all this. Okay? Bennett, you have a question. No, wait, wait for the microphone. Here you go. I do have a question. Right down in section three, mm-hmm. where um, it said must misunderstanding. Yeah, is it very similar to that? So, what's the question? Well, can you understand everything that God said? Can you understand everything that God said? That's that's a great question. Let me try to answer that. John wrote. To communicate, John wrote with a goal that we might, these signs have been written, that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. So John didn't write because he was expressing himself. John didn't write to get something off his chest, as opposed to like sometimes an artist will make a piece of art and does he intend to be understood? No, he's just trying to express himself. John's trying to communicate. John's trying to persuade, to convince. And so all of that presupposes John needs to be understandable. So, no, my assumption would be that with the Old Testament and with the supplemental information that John gives us, with that subset, we should be able to understand John. Now, given how many times people misunderstand Jesus, I'm suggesting we should double, triple check our math. We should not move too boldly and too confidently because other people, lots of other people have misunderstood Jesus. And John highlights that. But it would not. How could John convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, if John couldn't be understood? So I think that's it's presupposed in him writing is is it doesn't work if it's not intelligible. It doesn't work if it doesn't persuade, if it's not capable of persuading its audience. And it can't persuade if it doesn't mean anything. Um, okay. Good question, Bennett. Thank you. Other questions?
Bueller. Bueller. Jeremy, yeah. on the earlier comment you meant about believing in Jesus' name, yeah, is there more to what I would think if all I knew in English was the word name, meaning somebody's name? Yeah, is there more to it than that? And what yes. is there? The the idea we get from the Old Testament is your name is significant. Your name is tied with who and what you are, such that if your station changes frequently, in the Old Testament you get a new name. God enters into a covenant with Abram, and he now becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Um, and so the notion of your name actually identifying something with you, which doesn't speak well for Nabal, whose name meant fool, right? He's Abigail's husband. And his, I don't think he was born and named Nabal. I think somewhere in his life, enough people realize, no, no, you're Nabal, you know, Um and so your name is tied up with who and what you are. So when Jesus talks about, we'll get to this extensively in John, because Jesus is going to make some bold statements like anything you ask in my name, believing you will receive, right? His name is more than a magic phrase or mantra. Who he is, what he's about, what his goals and purposes are, something like that would be in his name. So the content's got to be there. Believing in his name would be believing in his identity. And then he he goes on to define the identity specifically, his messiahship and his son of Godship, for lack of a better term. But no, that's 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 a good question. That's a good question. Um, any other questions? Otherwise, we'll go to John five. Here we go, John five. Okay. Um, John five is absolutely fascinating in in it, what it reveals about the Trinity. The econ- okay. Let me use some categories. So. Um, if I, does anyone know what economy means? Economics, that's root word, what it means. Oikos, namos, house law, house rule, function. The econo- So when we talk about the economic trinity, we're talking about the functions that the various members in the trinity perform and do. What, what does the trinity do? Who do the members of the trinity do? So in that sense, we can make distinction. The son is sent by the father. The father isn't sent by the son. Right there, what what the members of the Trinity do? There's distinction. That's an important that's an important thing to say because we wouldn't want to see distinction. In essence, they're all fully God. Jesus isn't just a little less God. So, in being, in ontology, full equality, in economic, in 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 what they do and how they do what they do, distinction. Um, and John 5 gives us some remarkably insightful information about the economic trinity. Um, it's called coming out of verse 17. And one of the reasons why I said Jesus is picking a fight is because we know from chapter 8 he can give a different sort of answer. In chapter 8, he gives the answer of, hey, you, you circumcise on the eighth day. And if the eighth day is a Sabbath, you recognize one of those two takes priority over the other and you circumcise. So if it's okay to... If you're not breaking the Sabbath by circumcising on the eighth day, how can you say I'm breaking the Sabbath by making a whole man's body well on the eighth day? Jesus doesn't give that answer here in five. He says, my dad works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. That is an escalation. (laughs) And they get it. Verse 18, this is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so what the rest of this chapter, five. So what the rest of this chapter is taken up with is two issues. The first, what does Jesus mean making himself an equal with God? And the second, by what authority? This is such an audacious claim. I mean, good grief. If someone came in here and said, I want you to let you know I'm God's equal. I hope you wouldn't be like, well, if you say so. You would expect a tremendous amount of evidence. You would demand a tremendous amount of evidence to, to substantiate such a claim. And the second half of chapter 5 is all Jesus pointing to the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of his works, the testimony of his father, and the testimony of Scripture. On that basis, this claim stands. But the, the, but the first thing he deals with is clarifying, and he's clarifying two possible misunderstandings. If you think of a road with a ditch, there's a ditch on either side. One ditch is Jesus means something less than full equality with God. No, 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 no. He means full equality with God. 
And so he'll guard against that. But the other error he'll guard against is some notion that he's in competition with the father, that he's some alternate God, that he's the polytheism. He wants to make it clear. I am fully God's equal. I do everything the father does. And yet my will is completely conformed to his will. There is no tension. There is no conflict. We're in perfect harmony. In fact, it's the Father's will that I do these things. Those are the two ditches he's trying to guard against. And so reading forward, we're going to get some of the most profound instruction on how the Father and Son relate. So, 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. There's the dependency emphasis. I, I, I don't act on my own. This wasn't my own idea. I'm like, hey, I know what I'll do. I'll compete with God. We know someone else who tried doing that. His name's Satan. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is only, he is not taking the initiative. The Father is taking the initiative. Only what I see my Father doing. But then, on the full equality side, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And pause. What we're dealing with here is economic parentage in function. We have the expression, a chip off the old block, like Father, like Son. That, here at least, is how Jesus is fundamentally construing fathership. We, we are so used to genetic and genetic testing and CSI that when we think of father, we think primarily in those terms. Genetic. Who supplied the genetic material? Here, that's not, in this instance at least, that's not fundamentally what's in view. What's in view is learning the family trade. D.A. Carson gives this example. I won't even pretend to not just be ripping him off. And it, like You get this. So Stradivarius goes around and he teaches his son how to mix the paint. And Stradivarius Sr. teaches his son how to choose the wood and how to cure the wood and how to get the uh, strings. And, and eventually he shows his son all that he does in making a violin. And if the son is dutiful and attentive, then the son can carry on the family trade. That's the way Jesus is using this category. Look, so he says, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And they, they would all expect that the, the son is following the father's footsteps. That's why Jesus in the Gospels can at time be the son of the carpenter and then later the carpenter. Because the assumption is you're going to carry on the family trade. They didn't have remotely as, as our ability. I mean, I'm guessing most of us don't do what our parents did in in. in the world Jesus lived in, in the times of the Bible, you'd almost certainly be doing what your parents did. Almost certainly. And so that's, that's the way this is being spoken. So Jesus is a obedient and faithful son. He imitates his father. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, which is a remarkable statement also. Most of us think of God's love shown towards us in redemptive categories. When you think of in what ways does God show his love to you, you think about he's merciful, he's patient, he's slow to anger, he's forgiven my sin, he's adopted me into his household. We're talking about graces, things you don't deserve, good things that, that you can't claim on your own merit, or mercy, the avoidance of punishment you do deserve. And the, the strange thing is the son, as far as I can think through it, has never received mercy from the father. The one time he asked for it, the answer was no. And the cup didn't pass. The father loves the son. And so how does the father show his love to the son if it's not through forgiveness and mercy and grace like it is to us? Well, here, one of the ways the father shows his love to the son is a full, thorough, complete self-disclosure. And back to the picture of the, the father and the son learning the family trade, the loving father shows his son all that he is doing. Stradivarius Sr. shows him all the steps in making the violin, and the loving son pays attention, and he doesn't innovate. He does exactly what he sees his father doing. That's, that, I think, is the, the, the type of metaphor, the idea that Jesus is drawing upon. And then he's going to make it clear he means everything. Because we can be called sons and daughters of God, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called... Children of God, thank you. Children of God. Why? To the degree that you make peace, you show yourself to be of the peace family, of which God is the ultimate head. This gets back to the same thing when Jesus calls the Pharisees, you sons of the devil. He is not speaking trash about their mothers. 
It's back to this notion of how you act shows what family you're from. Son of, son of Belial, son of worthlessness, is another statement Jesus likes to use. And the logic is something like, you're so incredibly disgustingly worthless that the only possible explanation is you're part of the worthlessness family. That's, that's the idea. I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating it to make the point, but that's what it means to be a son of Belial. You're of your father, the devil. He is not insinuating that their mothers did anything untoward. Rather, th- whose family you are is clear. And that's in John 8, the, the whole logic. You're li- How do you know that you're of the devil family? Because he's a liar from the beginning. You're lying about me. He's a murderer from the beginning. You're trying to murder me. I, you look like your father. You're doing his works. You're acting like the devil family. And so I know who your dad is. That's, that's the logic. So keep going. Jesus... I, is then going to so sorry, I'm got to drink too much coffee. <laughs> Deep breath. So, lest we think that maybe Jesus only means he's the Son of God in the same way that if you and I make peace, we're sons and daughters of God. And what's going to come next is going to make it clear when he says he does everything he sees the Father do, he means everything, including creation. And in that sense, you and I will never be sons and daughters of God. You and I will never create universes. Like that's like we can reflect God in certain ways. There are other ways we we cannot and never will reflect God because there are some ways we cannot be like God. Um, let's go on. Greater works than these, verse twenty, will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Wow. Okay. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. So when Jesus says he's imitating his father, final judgment has been given to the son. We're not just talking about you're a son and daughter of God because you make peace. We're talking about Jesus is doing everything he sees the father doing. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. It is the father's will, get this claim, that Jesus received similar, the same honor that the Father receives. Not lesser. Equality here. And that's the Father's purpose. The fa- that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Father wants His Son to be honored just as much as He is honored. Okay. Um, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is back to our how you treat Jesus is how you treat God. And and again, plug this in, because you'll meet nice people who say they believe in God, but don't believe in Jesus. Nope. That, nope. Jesus says nope. Um, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then we get to the most astounding. This is the one like I've been studying John again and again. And again. This verse makes my head spin. 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he's granted for the son also to have life in himself. Did we talk about this last week? Did we look at this one last week? Okay. So let me tell you what I think this says. And I'll have time to work on it more between now and when we get there in a year or two. But but take this, because you got, you've got to just as so then. For as the father, da, 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 the son. What does it mean that the father has life in himself? I think that means something like the father is self-existent. Um, again, back to Carson, I can hear him on audio recording. The father has life in himself, you know, hyphenated. You know, he has life in himself. He is, he is of himself. He is not derivative. He is self-existent. Okay, that makes sense to that so far. And then you get to, so he has granted or gifted, didomy. He's given, granted the son also to have life in himself. How on earth can you speak of giving self-existence? I mean, you're talking about square circles and four-sided triangles. I don't comprehend. But as best as I can understand this, that's what Jesus is saying. We'll have time to get there to straighten my heresies out. But, but, um, but here's the point. There's a very, very real sense that beyond metaphor, at some 
ontological sense of being. Jesus is sourced from, of, from the Father. Uh, the only begotten language. Jesus is of or from the Father in a very real sense, not metaphorically. And yet he is equally and fully God. And that's, I think, the two truths we need to hold on. I don't think we're going to fully understand 26 and what it's saying, except to say, no, no, no. It's not just a metaphor. In a very, very foundational, real sense, the Son is from, of the Father. The Son is fully God. I think as long as we hold on to those two orbs, we're good. Not that we'll fully understand it. I have no idea how the Father granted the Son to have life in himself. But that's what Jesus claims. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So right there, and that's where Jesus, I think, is balancing what he means by I and the Father are one, um, is some of the most profound in, in informing our understanding of the Trinity. What, what, how is the Son the Son? How is the Father the Father? What does that mean? What are they communicating? I don't know of many passages in the Bible that give more information on that subject than those 10 verses. Um, yes, Alex. So how do you work in, in terms of the, com the return of Jesus? Like no one knows the day, yeah. not the angels, not even the son, but only the father. Sure. I would say um, that... Jesus experiences limitations during the incarnation that are not do not typify his being eternally. So Jesus, God does not grow weary or tired. Incarnate Jesus grew weary and tired. So is he not God? I mean, just take even a simpler one. God does not grow weary, nor does he faint. Right? And God says this repeatedly. Jesus grew weary and he got tired. In the incarnation, Jesus voluntarily took on limitations which are not inherent to him. It's not inherent to Jesus that he would grow tired. He voluntarily took that limitation on. One of the limitations he took on was he learned. He did not come into this world functionally omniscient. Luke 2 is clear. He grew in wisdom and stature. So Jesus did not come into flesh with all the wisdom. And I'm, that's why I'm using functional categories. He did not function... So, so the incarnated Jesus is not in function in equal with God. He's got limitations. He can grow weary. He can grow hungry. He cannot know things. At the glorification, when he returns to the Father where he receives... so he's, And part of that in John is he set aside some amount of glory. I'd say tied with that because he says, Father, I yearn for the glory I had with you before the world began. So when he returns he re-enters the fullness of that glory. And I'd say he re-enters the fullness of utilizing and experiencing those divine attributes that were never removed from him. He just isn't using them. So you would say it at the, or after the ascension? He knows. He knows. Okay. Right now, Jesus knows when he's coming back. Yes. The, the analogy I use, it's a weak analogy, but imagine I have, I know, let's pick a car. Um, let's imagine I have a forerunner. And I got the forerunner of all the bells and whistles, the L.O. Bean, the, the Corinthian leather, the JBL speakers, the power assist, everything. It's just, it's just just every possible like bonus thing I could get. And imagine you just have the forerunner like this, just like the bare bones model. You know, you don't you don't even have like power windows, man. You're just no. You got seat. <laughs> now, imagine, imagine I've got a button in my car that can turn off all my my Gucci features. I no longer have power windows. I no longer have power seats. I no longer have power steering. I got to turn the wheel myself. If I flip that switch, I can say to you, my experience right now of driving my car is the same as your experience. Because it's important that Jesus comes and stands in our place and lives our life for us. The danger is to think Jesus has all those ups and, and super switches. So you're not impressed when Jesus survives temptation because, well, he's God. And you're not surprised when Jesus stays up all night praying because, well, God doesn't get tired. No, Jesus is subject to our limitations. We're supposed to be in awe of him. Luke, Luke, more than any other gospel writer, wants us to conclude, why does Jesus master the Bible? It's not because he's God. It's because he's the faithful boy who studied in the temple for three days. That's the type of boy he was when he was 12. He's the 12-year-old boy who didn't go anywhere when he was studying his Bible. So we're to conclude from the way Luke presents it, his mastery of scripture is the result of work. 
not while he's God. So what do you, what's the point of there? So we want to, we want to maintain Hebrews who's made like us in every way yet without sin. In every way, Jesus could be like you and me that doesn't involve sin. He was, which includes he could learn, he could know things. He didn't know some things. And yet he holds on to, he never stops being God's eagle. My, my forerunner never stops being the deluxe supermodel. Even in my experience in driving, it has become identical to your experience in driving yours. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think all of Jesus, no, I think, I think all of Jesus, I wouldn't die on this hill, but I think all of Jesus' supernatural power and knowledge is from the Spirit. That's the, way oh, Luke, okay. that's the way Luke frames it. He returns in the power of the Spirit. That's still God, but it's not, he's not flipping the switch. And, and in this sense, Jesus is functioning differently than Elijah. There are prophets, men, whom God pours his Spirit out and gives them the ability to do things. And so Jesus is in Luke. I mean, I'm just going back to Luke, the prophet, right? Elijah worked miracles. But I think Luke at least frames it. Turn to Luke 4. I think you could know your Bible as well as Jesus. In theory, if you worked like Jesus worked at it, you could. There's no re. There's nothing stop. I'm saying this carefully. There is nothing stopping you from knowing your Bible as well as Jesus knew his Bible in his 30s. You will never know your Bible like he knows his Bible now. But, but there's no reason. Um. So look. So look at Luke four. After the temptation. Verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went about him throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, Jesus, so Luke is framing Jesus' return. When you see Jesus operating in power, whose power is it? It's the Spirit's power. So Luke's telling us who to attribute the miracles that are going to start showing up in later in this chapter. And it's the so I'm just taking my cues from Luke, as Luke's telling me when you see Jesus doing powerful stuff, it's the power of the Spirit he's returning in. So, like, the example of Nathaniel, where Jesus calls Nathaniel, saying, hey, in you is no deceit. Like, he knows his heart. That is, the Spirit is showing him In that. the same way that Elijah knew that his servant had gone and then extorted some clothes from Naaman. Okay. How did Elijah know that? Well, God revealed it to him. So, no, I, that's my best understanding, is that Jesus has no cheat codes. He's relying on the Father. So the Father decides... Through the Holy Spirit, when Jesus knows things he wouldn't ordinarily know, when Jesus has power he wouldn't ordinarily have, and Jesus is dependent on the Father. It's not Jesus is suddenly going to turn on four-wheel drive and omniscience is now his and he's back. I, I want to hold on to both claims. Jesus is just like me in every way without sin. So I'm going to err to not pulling off a Superman. Do, do, do. You know, he's, he's me. In every way, he can be like me. That doesn't involve being sinful, um, and yet he doesn't stop being God. Dean, more at time. Well, yeah, the one with the well. That knowledge of her past was from the Spirit. That is, I can't be dogmatic because John doesn't tell us. In, see, you got so in Luke. This is where it gets back to the author. Luke directs me where to attribute the power. So I would say, going through Luke, Luke wants us to conclude. This miracle, this healing, which happens in four, is from the Spirit. Now, if I bring Luke into John, sure. John doesn't tell us. And John starts with a high deity. So I want to be careful not saying I figured it all out. But I'm not aware of any time, since all of Jesus' miraculous um, knowledge, miraculous powers are after his baptism. And since other Gospels attribute that to the Spirit, I'm not aware of any instance where that isn't a sufficient explanation. But since John doesn't direct me there, I'm, I'm not sure if John wants me to know. I, I don't know if John has in his mind. I wonder if they think Jesus is doing this in his own power, the Spirit's power. I, I don't know if John's bringing any of that to bear. So I don't want to go beyond what's written. I'm quite confident Luke wants me to conclude the Spirit is how Jesus is functioning. 
John doesn't even address it. Um, so, fa- which is why I won't say I'm certain. I like because it allows me to. It allows Jesus to remain more like me. Again, my my different my my goal is, I want, and I think because Hebrews tells me, I want to keep Jesus as much like me, as possible, yet without sin, because I know that that's so. As, as much as Jesus could be like you or me, he was yet without sin. So whenever I got an option that makes him more like me and not less like me, I default to that unless there's a reason not to. So that's the strength with which I say it was the Spirit. I can't prove it because John doesn't go there. But that's my instinct is to lean that way, if that makes sense. We're at time, folks. Thank you very much. Oh, did we have one more question? Well, I was just going to make a statement. Just like when you were saying um, we could, well, Lee asked the question about us being as knowledgeable of the Bible as Jesus. Wouldn't it just be comfortable to say that um, it won't be us? It'll be the spirit within us. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That well, that's I worded the way I worded it. Not that you can, because Jesus has a mind unaffected by the noetic effects of sin. He doesn't have perverse thoughts. He doesn't. He has a perfect mind. He's more inherently brilliant than we are. I simply said, there's nothing preventing us if we put the work in, if we put the time in. And in one sense, and that's why I said, to knowing your Bible is like Jesus when he was 30. I don't if you put if you put the same effort Jesus put in that he did in his childhood, who knows where you'll be at in your 70s? There's no Jesus shows us here's how well an unfallen mind with perfect, unqualified, diligent work can get. That that's what you've got in Jesus. But I wouldn't say you've got anything superhuman in that sense. Adam, if Adam hadn't fallen, could have, I think, theoretically, have known his Bible as well. So you've got an unfallen mind, you've got an undistracted human working to the glory of God perfectly, studying the word perfectly day in and day out. But it's still all within human categories. I I don't want to put it as in, it's some unattainable, well, he's God. No, this is what a perfect man working perfectly for 30 years gets to. So that's why I'll say it negatively. There's nothing preventing, there's no glass ceiling there's no insurmountable wall what's preventing me is my lethargy what's preventing me is my poor thinking what's preventing me is my laziness there's no like the son of man knows some things you'll never be able to know from the word no if i worked like he worked and i put time into it i could hope to get so that's why i want to word it the way i'm wording it there's nothing stopping you from knowing your bible like jesus knew his bible other than yourself you're the weak link Yes, you are the weakest link. Thank you very much. God bless.